Welcome back to the Fascinating Podcast. This is episode number 304. I'm J.R. Foresteros. And I'm Kathy Kong. And we're it this week, Kathy. It's you and me holding down the fort. Matt and Clay are both off doing jobs, I guess. Working is this something you're familiar with? Something. Yeah. I don't no, I don't know. Okay, well, uh, we are so excited this week. We're going to be talking about the FX TV show Reservation Dogs, which is, I will, I'll spoil, it's great. It's wonderful. Yeah, okay, so you've heard it. And I am super excited because we have a guest with us today who is a good friend of mine uh, named Reverend Sonia Brown. Sonia, welcome to the Fascinating Podcast for the first and definitely not the last time. Thank you for having me. I'm excited and nervous at the same time. <laughs> uh, people hang out with Kathy. That's, I think, the general vibe, excited and nervous. Because so. <laughs> <laughs> you're so great, Kathy. It's a compliment. <sighs> no need for nerves. You're just amongst friends virtually. It's a little awkward because we're not in the same room. But just imagine we're just hanging out. JR is drinking a Dr. Pepper. I've got coffee. With cream soda. Oh, you've got cream. Oh, oh. Oh, yeah. fancy. It's a whole thing. Fancy. I do not take what cream you can in get. my coffee. So. <laughs> so it's the same. Yeah, yeah. basically the same. Okay. Uh, so before we dive into Reservation Dogs and get to know Sonia better, I wanted to know if y'all heard the story that kind of went viral this week <laughs> about the man who is married <laughs> to a crane. I saw it and was like, is this, am I being punked? Is this for real? <laughs> Sonia, did you see this that was going around? Yes, I did. And I was surprised like about it. And I was really, it was really intrigued to see that he even knew like the dance that bonded him together with the crane. I was like, oh my gosh, it's real. <laughs> yeah. So if y'all get a chance to read the actual story. So I, I'm pretty sure what I, what I originally saw was on Facebook and it looked like someone had just done like screenshots of a Wikipedia page or something. Yes. It was like bullet points. Um, so I went and I went and did some digging because, you know, we as hard hitting journalists uh, here on the Fascinating Podcast like to verify before we just spread things that seem a little cuckoo. Um, and it turns out this is true. This was a story in The Washington Post, and it actually describes the guy doing the mating ritual with the bird. So let's back up a little bit. Uh, it turns out, apparently, that cranes uh, can imprint on just about anyone. And so this crane walnut imprinted on humans because she was there endangered and so she was raised in captivity but not raised around other cranes and so she doesn't think she's a crane uh she thinks she's a human and so she actually probably murdered two potential mates allegedly um, allegedly, allegedly. Yeah. um they did not see the incidents happen but they i guess found wounds consistent with cranes uh, and, you know, again, being endangered, uh, that's a real problem, uh, not only because now there's two fewer male cranes in the world, but because if she won't breed with cranes, uh, they don't, they, you know, that's can't make more work. cranes. Yeah. And so this uh, zookeeper named Chris Crow, no, ironically, no. <laughs> it's like Cameron Crow. It has an E at the end. Um, also, maybe Cameron Crow should make this movie. No. About Chris Crow and Walnut. Anyway, and Walnut. Uh, he figured out that Walnut kind of had a thing for him and and uh, in her mind, like, wanted to be his mate. And so he would actually have to have a syringe of crane semen and do, as Sonia said, do the mating dance stuff, like like tearing grass up and throwing it in the air is apparently very sexy if you're a crane. Um, he would do things like that. And then she would get 
you know, into position. We we all know how the birds and the bees works right here. So um, she was the bird, I guess he was the bee, and would, would inseminate the crane so that she could have babies. And he even takes his turn uh, uh, warming the eggs, which literally just means he stands next to the nest while they put a blanket on the eggs to keep them warm. And apparently she thinks this is adequate crane fathering. So... Uh, yeah, I. So the bar is low for birds too. This is what it sounds like. Yeah. The bare minimum is only needed. Wow! Wow! <laughs> Just stand and watch. Mm. Okay. In, in general, I'm curious how how the two of you feel about like zoos, animals in captivity. Amanda, my wife, finds it very difficult to go to zoos because she loves to see the animals, but you know they're also in captivity. I'm curious, like. What and obviously the story made me think about that. Sonia, like, are you a fan of zoos? Do you have mixed feelings about them? Do you hate them? What's the? I have mixed feelings about them. I'm the same way where I, um, I understand that I, the concept behind it, especially for endangered species, of how the um, the function to help them thrive, um, where they wouldn't be able to in the wild. But I think just to see them in the cages or not so much cages anymore, but within their um, separate areas and just the limited capacity of movement, it's kind of sad that how they would be in the wild isn't really how they interact in the zoo. So not really a fan, but I'll... Have you been to the Kansas City Zoo yet since you've moved up there? Um. We have, it's not as interesting as the San Diego Zoo, so that's the... <laughs> well, come on. True. <laughs> that's the that. we with, but the only, you know, um, they have the wild, like the zoo in the city, then they have like the wild park. Yeah. So my son, when he was little, we go to the wild park one because um, he would just like to look at the land. So whenever we were homesick, we'd actually go to the wildlife refuge because it reminded us of um, back the re- the landscape reminded us of back home on the reservation. So he was he felt at home and felt better. Then we just went that's back. fascinating. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Kathy, so, what about you? Zoos? Yeah, mixed feelings. I think um, there there is that aspect of. Uh, Wildlife, not preservation. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, especially with endangered species and having them in spaces where they can mate and hopefully come out of possible extinction. Um, and my kids loved zoos when they were little, so there's that. We did the whole like go to the zoo thing when they were little, but. Um, but there's also, you know, it's weird to see wild animals in even even in spaces that are created to make it look like they're in their native habitat, whatever that, you know, so we imagine that they're they are in these spaces, but they're still limited. But then the other flip side to that is like, well, how else would we see these animals? How else would we have? some sort of interaction with nature. And I think that's kind of the bigger question in my mind is, well, we can't afford to travel and take and go on safari. <laughs> so yay for the people who can see that and do that. But on a regular basis, we're barely managing a vacation where we can like 
see nature as in like go hiking where there's elevation since we're in the Midwest and it's very flat. So I think there, it, it's a combination of mixed feelings there. Yeah. Um, so now the million dollar question, mm. if you found yourself in a situation similar to Chris Crow, how long would you put up with it? If it was your job, right? He's a zookeeper. He wasn't just some rando dude that was walking by and walnut imprinted on him. And he was like now trapped in a loveless marriage or something like that, right? Like he is a zookeeper. So this is ostensibly part of his job, sure. but it's, it's certainly unusual. So, so how, uh, Kathy, how long would you put up with being a, 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 a bird spouse? A bird spouse. Well, you know, I've put up being um, a human spouse for almost 29 years. So I feel like if I can do that, then I could be a bird spouse for as long I, I'm as I'm going to be need. honest. Yeah. I've, I've only hung out with Peter in person <laughs> once, but from, and I've never met Walnut the Crane, but right. I have read an article about her and Killing. Peter seems way more giving and loving than Walnut. Sure. I mean, Walnut allegedly killed two male cranes. So there's yeah. that. And, um, so yes, definitely, definitely. But if it was part of my job, of course, okay, I would play yeah, along and and I would For probably yuck it up even more. A decade? A decade? I suppose if they're mating that long, if if that if that's what we're going to uh, do for the science. The article said that cranes can live 40 years. Oh good lord. Wow. Okay, well, I'm probably not going to be working for 40 years at the same <laughs> zoo. That's my guess. So you would move and consign Walnut to a, uh, not only a loveless future, Mm -hmm. but also a lack of, um, a lack of laying eggs and populating the crane species. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I try to maybe work myself out of a job. Maybe could introduce Walnut to someone else and try to like, you know. Okay. Sonia, yeah. what about you? How long would you tolerate being a bird spouse? Uh, I don't know. I think it'd be the same way I try to work myself out of this job. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I right? like it. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I high-mindedly like to think that I would consider that this is a, a unique problem that, that literally the choice it, it's, if the birds were not endangered, this is a totally different thing, right? It's like, sure. well, whatever, too bad. Too bad walnut, like, and it's not walnut's fault. Like, obviously, this is because we didn't know how cranes matured right. and how they imprinted. and all. So it's certainly not walnut's fault that no. she's a murderous harpy. Um, but um, if if she were not in, endangered, that'd be a totally different thing, right? And, and I have to wonder for, for Mr. Crow, Dr. Crow, possibly, I don't know, um, like how much the calculus of, like, this is an endangered bird and part of my job is to preserve these endangered species factors into it, you know, and maybe like, I don't know when crane menopause is, um, when, when walnut passes the, you know, the age of being able to have fertile eggs. Um, but like maybe I would, maybe I could tough it out until that. And then, you know, once, once we're empty nesters, maybe see about divorce. That was well done, JR. That was well done. Thank you. Thank you. Anyway, uh, yeah, we'd love to hear if anyone has any more insights maybe about uh, Chris Crow and Walnut. Uh, And Crane uh, menopause. That's right. That's right. We wish them well. Uh, Mr. Crane, big fan. Love to have you and your bird spouse on the show. Let us know. Um, (laughs) 
Anyway, let's get to let's do a proper introduction for Sonia. Yes. Um, Sonia, thanks for being at the top of the show with us. Guests usually come in at this point. So we're very oh. honored to have your your wisdom and insight at the top of the show as well. Um, I met Sonia uh, because we are part of the same denomination. We're both in the Church of the Nazarene, both ordained in the Church of the Nazarene. Um, and I think I, I think just like our denomination does, we just sort of were in the same circles and hanging out and swimming around. And then um, during the during our COVID shutdown, uh, Sonia started attending Catalyst virtually because you were still living in Arizona at the time. Uh, and so after a while, I reached out and I was like, Are, you're this Sonia Brown, right? And she said, I am that Sonia Brown, in fact. <laughs> and so I invited I invited her to preach. Uh, and I said specifically, I said, here's, you, you said you wanted to. And I said, here's our preaching calendar for, you know, September and October. And Sonia said, what if I just did the Sunday before Indigenous Peoples Day? And I was like, well, look, I wasn't going to ask you to do that because that's in my mind sort of like asking a woman to preach on Mother's Day. It's like, well, mm, a little bit on the nose, but you suggested it and I was a huge fan. And so since then, Sonia has joined the preaching team at Catalyst, even though you live in Kansas City and are finishing up your master's in divinity. Uh, so that's one of been one of the cool things about virtual COVID stuff. Yeah. Um, but in in as I've gotten to know Sonia better, one of the things I've uh, recognized as a kindred sp- spirit when it comes to all things faith and pop culture and finding God in all kinds of places, not just in the uh, places where you know taught to find God. Uh, so she did a sermon this past summer on Captain America and the Winter Soldier, yeah. uh, and she did one on Stranger Things, which I was super jealous of both of those, obviously because those are right in my wheelhouse as well. Uh, but so we knew when we wanted to talk about reservation dogs, uh, Sonia and I had already been texting about it anyway. So I said, we ha- like, we have to have Sonia on for this. So Sonia, welcome again to the fascinating podcast. Thank you for being with us. And, uh, yeah, our, our first thing we always ask new guests is what is, what fascinates you in life? What's just one thing that you just love to be kind of a nerd about? You know, um, I think I've always loved, um, comics. And um, Jim Lee is my favorite Batman artist. And so that's basically my nerd out. And then even when we lived in San Diego, going to Comic-Con, and then my son, like when we actually were at Comic-Con and meeting him was like, oh my God, like like the happiest moment of my life. (laughs) So by all accounts, he's a pretty cool dude in person. Is that true? Yeah, he's very nice, and um, he took a picture with my son and everything. So it was like, I was like, like you know, like you're like starstruck. But yeah. then, like, why would people get starstruck over? Like, if they probably. I mean, he was just like randomly walking around, and was just like, yeah. I mean, most people probably would not recognize any comic book artist. Artist, yeah. By sight, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, for folks, uh, if you think you don't know Jim Lee's Batman, you're actually probably wrong. Go Google image search Jim Lee Batman and you'll be like, oh, oh that guy. Right. Like, he is. Uh, yeah. Sonia is 100 percent right about him. Just yeah, incredible. So talented. I, I think I even have like a coffee cup with his one of his artwork on it. I'm just like oh, just in a book. And yeah, totally in love with it. <laughs> Amazing. That. Well, you know, and appreciating the artwork is one thing, but then recognizing him in passing at Comic-Con, <laughs> that's like another level. So, wow. Well, and he's he is now, I'm pretty sure, like the executive direct, creative director for all of DC Comics or something like, like he's pretty far up in the DC, oh, um, in the DC chain. Comics uh, org chart, you know, so... 
making decisions about movies and the future of, you know, multiple storylines and stuff like that. Yeah. Jim Lee. Jim Lee, big fan. Loved to have you on the show. We'll bring Sonia back as a guest interviewer. Let us know. <laughs> that would be so awesome. Uh, so, Sonia, we are working to release this episode uh, on Indigenous Peoples Day, uh, which, again, I think most of our listeners are aware that that is um, probably too slowly replacing Columbus Day in the United States as a holiday, but it's getting there. It's happening in more and more and more places. So, um, can you talk a bit? Can you talk a little bit about what what Indigenous Peoples Day means for you, and especially your your you and I are pretty close to the same age, so we grew up when it was just Columbus Day, and I've been yeah. watching this shift happening. So can you, you share a little bit about where you find yourself in that? Okay. Um, I think just like when I was growing up, when I was little and just started elementary school, I'd have to just go from there. Um, so I just remember coming back from school and then um, telling my mom, oh, she's like, what did we tell you about school? What did you learn today? And we're like, oh, they told us about this guy named Columbus. And she's like, he did not discover America. He was lost. And then yeah. after that, it was just like, so like in the 80s, mid 80s. And like from there, she like sat us down and just like told us like, and I think that's really what she taught us. My sister and I was just like, this is who you are as a people. So, and so, so sorry, real quick. So you grew up, you're, you're Dine Navajo yes. and you grew up on the reservation in Arizona. Yes. Okay. And so were you attending the school, school on the reservation also? Yes. Um, so she actually had us go to, um, to the city boarding school. Um, I know it's like a lot of residential schools are like, um, in the, like with all the, um, murdered children. Um, and missing children, but she had us go there because of her experience in boarding school, and she was very involved um, with the school. And um, it was like a lot. They still had the boarding school portion, but then also um, kids in the community could go there, and then they also had like the public school. But she like really wanted us involved, and she was really um, just told us like from the beginning, like the story of our people, the story mm. of colonization and the effects of this man who claims to have, which who is like placed on the pedestal to discover America, but then like totally ignores the people that were already inhabiting this land. And so, so that was, you're saying, you know, mid to late eighties, that's still happening in, uh, in these schools there, so, which, which I, you know, I went to a, I went to a suburban public school and we certainly didn't, we, we learned the same thing about Columbus, you know, like, yeah. oh yeah, he discovered America. That's why every third thing in this country is named Columba something, Columbia, Columbus, Colum you know, um, but I, I'm, 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 I guess I shouldn't say surprised. I'm sad that, that even, even in indigenous spaces, that was still what was being taught even, even, you know, pretty, pretty recently. Yeah. Um, so I think just learning about the history from um, my mom and her telling us from the beginning that no, this isn't correct and you need to forget that. But then it's always embedded, like in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and it's all rhymy and, right. <laughs> and lighthearted. But then like to, he like to hear, and then it's not something that you read in the storybooks, like about the death the 
everything that happens that came along because of the colonization that he brought to the Americas. Mm-hmm. And so it was like being little, didn't really understand it. But then as they grew up and just began to understand it even more, it was just never a holiday. And then high school, when you're like a teenager, and that by time, by that time, we're off reservation in Flagstaff, Arizona. And then other students, and then, so they would always tell us the day before Columbus, like the day before Columbus Day. So it's like a Friday. They would always announce, like, if you protest on Columbus Day, you will be kicked out of school. So, <laughs> so just a warning heads up. Don't warning do it. Up, don't do it. Wow. So we were always warned. Because we we were actually by that time people were becoming more and more vocal of the holiday, but so by the time in the um, mid like mid to late nineties, it was like, okay, this is what's going to happen if you protest if you decide to walk out on this holiday. So my mom she she was always very conscious about certain things, and she would either like check us out of school or um, like like do things intentionally to where we wouldn't participate in certain activities that would promote um, this oppression of people. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it's important to note, right? Like your, your mom individually is taking these actions to um, protect you, shelter you from those, but systemically it's still being enacted, right? This is a systemic uh, structural observation and celebration of Columbus. Yeah. Um, and, and again, you know, a number of school districts, cities, and even states have been moving towards uh, taking down Columbus statues, changing Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day, and instead of um, instead of celebrating Columbus, actually celebrating the various Indigenous peoples that uh, are with us, among us, you know, whose land we're on, things like that. Uh, I think my favorite has been trying to get, trying to rename, there's been a petition to rename the capital of Ohio, which is Columbus, to Flavortown, because Guy Fieri is from Columbus, Ohio. (laughs) So, uh, Kathy, would you rather live in a town named after Christopher Columbus or Guy Fieri? (sighs) Yeah, see? Easy choice. (laughs) <laughs> is it? I, oh, if those are your two choices, yeah, it's I guess super that's my, to my my two choices. But again, why do we have to always live in these binaries that are fake and made up? We got to find. I mean, Flavortown, Ohio, okay. sounds pretty awesome. It also sounds really cheesy and like <laughs> if not you're into cheese, sure, and can't take seriously. Like, <laughs> like there's like it's a park, you know. And there's welcome people. to Flavortown. Okay, all right. <laughs> Well, you know, growing up here in in Chicago land, broadly, I'm in the suburbs. Um, there's a huge Italian immigrant population, and so when CPS, I want to say two, three years ago, announced that the school district, like as a whole, was not going to recognize, not celebrate uh, Columbus Day, and that was finally acknowledging Indigenous People Day, People's Day, it was a it was a big deal. There were lots of you know news stories locally and. Um, uh, community leaders speaking up and saying, you know, no, no, that th- that's not what this day is about. And I was like, really? Because th- that's what I was taught in CPS back in the 70s that, you know, Columbus discovered America. So um, it, it, it should be interesting 
someone asked about like, do you have calendars? What does your calendar say? So I looked at my planner and it says Indigenous Peoples Day. It does not say Columbus Day. And I was like, oh, good. I got a good planner. Of course, I haven't really been paying attention. It's already October. <laughs> Shoot. Yeah, it's coming up quick. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about reservation dogs, or let's talk a lot about reservation dogs. Uh, so we are going to do a couple of segments here. We're going to talk about the show, and then we're going to, uh, with with no spoilers or mild spoilers, maybe the first episode or two, and then we're gonna then we're gonna dive into the whole show. So, uh, so this is the first show with an all indigenous writers room and all indigenous directors, and the showrunner Sterling Harjo is the second indigenous showrunner in history. The first one being the showrunner of a really old show that was on years and years and years ago called Rutherford Falls, which actually also came out this year. So, um, Sonia, I'm curious, like, could you feel that in the show itself as you watched even that first episode? I guess, you know, um, I think just hearing also is um, Sterling Harjo, like he comes from a family member, Susan Harjo, um, who's a great advocate of um, the indigenous community. Um and um, just people of color. So, but then also the significance of the show is um, just to have that voice and that perspective of our people, which isn't always seen. Um, so what is historically been done is always, Native Americans always played like an acting character of where we're secondary. And, um, I think uh, Real Engine, which was a documentary, um, discussed like um, how we're just kind of like, just like a, just like just a secondary character of where even the story where it's supposed to like with dances with wolves, it should focus right. on the native people, but we're not even the main character. We're no. just we're just. Um, the secondary characters of um, the main character. Right. So, and not I even, think not even the sidekick. You're just kind of yeah. there in the environment. Yeah. Yeah. So it was. So with this story, it just brings about this realness um, to our people, and then also, I think a lot of times too, how Native Americans are portrayed is always kind of like this historic either from a historical um, past understanding to where that people don't see us now um, like in the present context and then also how um, we're always portrayed like stoic but then there was always this need and this wanting that just is like just to see us for who we are like just as people who are going through these struggles, because if it's never in a positive light, we're always seeing it in negative lights. So, so we're either this stoic spiritual native, or we're this um, group of people who are drunks and who are lazy, who have to be, um, be like control because we're these wild Indians and um, they have to be tamed along with the West. So, yeah. Well, and it's it's also fascinating this sense of uh, Indigenous peoples always being in the in the past that there's no present 
And, and so it's easy to create characters and um, these very flat characters when you're only portrayed as being in the past. There's no present day. There's no movement from, you know, 1492 or whatever the stories that we, you know, whatever lies were told um, so that there's no, you're not fully human, right? The stories, the characters, the existence is not really human. And so the idea is like, oh, well, like even, even next month is another holiday, Thanksgiving with that made up story of like, oh, let's get together. And isn't this wonderful? Forget about the disease and the death and all of that kind of stuff. And that it's always in this kind of historical past and that Indians and the pilgrims hung out and isn't that cool? And Indians are never revisited. And yet the pilgrims, people can trace their lineage back to like, oh, my family came on the Mayflower. And I'm like, oh, are you you proud of that? Let's have that conversation. So it's, that is fascinating to me. So shall we talk about the first episode? Do you have, did you have a follow-up there, JR? Oh, I just wanted to say, um, when I have been trying to pitch this show to people, I compare it to Atlanta because Mm. of this. Um, Atlanta made a lot of waves and headlines for being uh, what I've described as unapologetically black. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is as literal as possible. The show is not made by black people for a white audience. It's made by black people for a black audience. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of black culture that goes completely unexplained. There's Mm -hmm. no handholding, which is is completely different from most uh, other shows that feature a primary black cast. Um, they're usually made for white viewers. Yep. And I feel, I, my sense of watching the show reservation dogs was very much the same thing. It was made by native people for native people and I was welcome to watch it and they hope I enjoy it, but there was no accommodation made for my ignorance of native culture. Mm-hmm. Um, if that makes sense, which I don't mean as a criticism at all. I mean, I, I, I felt like it was, um, I don't know. I I just I felt like it was a really special, very unique thing I was getting to bear witness to. So, yeah, yeah, that was that. Was, I just wanted to kind of comment on that. So, yeah, Kathy, take us into episode one. Yeah. So, I would love to know um, what you thought about the first episode and and seeing this show written by and for. Indigenous people. Sonia, what what struck you? What were... I think just from the beginning, um, the narrative is told actually from the people. um, And I think it's often um, seen as like marginalized and, um, and always seen from, like you talked about, from this like flat character. And then just to see from this realness and this perspective of this representation of what um, Native life is like. And it's relatable in a sense to where their reservation in Oklahoma, I I can relate to it, even though I'm from the Navajo reservation from Arizona. But there's that, just the common, um, common, representation, the storytelling that the narrative that goes throughout the first episode that leads you into 
the other episodes that it begins to set the stage for what life is like and really just bringing back a perspective of like growing up on the reservation. So one of the things, for example, was like when they um, stole that, that truck and then they had all the chips <laughs> and then they were selling the chips. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so red. Like, because as kids, we'd always do something to like, to like, oh, we need to raise money. So let's go sell some food. So when they were talking about meat pies, like, yeah. I remember, <laughs> I remember my, like, my cousins and my siblings and I, we'd always like, um, during the, especially during the summertime, we'd be like selling, like, we'd be making popsicles or like, um, um, like popcorn balls or something like that. And we're always selling something in order to make money for whatever trip we're going to take into town. So <laughs> I think it, there's just that real story and it's funny in a sense to like, oh my gosh, that was, that's so like, so res. <laughs> <laughs> And it, was, it, it just brought back like really like fond memories for it. So uh, I want to know who everyone's face. So we have four core in the friend group, right? We have Alora, Bear, Willie Jack, and Cheese. Uh, so I'm curious who everyone's favorite is. I I, I know who mine is for sure, but uh, yeah, Sonia, who who of the four was your favorite, or did you identify with most? I think Willie Jack because she's so relatable in a sense of like she's kind of tomboyish and then just what she knows about like her culture and hunting and just relatable in that sense of how a lot of us um girls grew up on the reservation to where you're just kind of like going with the flow and just outspoken I just I just love her in that way and just her perspective of her culture there was one scene where they're getting ready to fight and she takes off her earrings. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yes, girl. You're, <laughs> you're ready. You're ready. And I, so there was that like li- very little things I saw that I was like, oh, she, she fully knows who she is in her body to have the wherewithal to be like, well, these are going to have to come off. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so I was doing some research uh, th- on the show, and it turns out that that actress, mm-hmm. uh, who's played by Paulina Alexis, uh, or sorry, the character of Willie Jack was originally written to be a boy, and Cheese was was written, and they weren't sure what gender Cheese was going to be. Okay, but they brought so they brought in Lane Factor, who plays Cheese in the show, and Polina Alexis, who plays Willie Jack, and they read for the opposite parts. Oh. So Alexis read for Cheese, and Factor read for Willie Jack, and then someone had the idea to switch the two of them, and they liked them so much in those roles that they went back in and rewrote Willie Jack uh, for uh, so that Polina Alexis could play her. Um, which, yeah, she's also my favorite. I mean, she was just, she was so funny and, uh, yeah, Kathy, the way you described her, like she seemed the most at home in herself, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, uh, well, sorry, I'll save that for spoilers. Um, never mind. I was going to say <laughs> something very spoilery. Um, is she also your favorite Kathy? She is not. I loved her. Ooh, I did. I okay. loved her. 
I think my favorite is somebody I relate more to, and it's Alora. And the sense of like, she is the, like, she she carries the weight of a responsibility and kind of the, you know, so kind of let's, let's hold that conversation for later with the spoilers, but just um, there is a weight that she carries that I found very compelling in, in that, in that time of life. Right. And, and kind of in a friendship circle, there's always going to be kind of like the irresponsible one who's a little bit of a dreamer. And then there's the like the the one who has to say, mm, like, OK, we can do this, but let's not break this rule. And I always feel like I'm the I'm the party pooper and Alora can kind of be the party pooper. And so maybe I just relate to the party pooper part. But I think there was this kind of emotional depth that you don't you know a little bit about, but not until later in the series where you're like, oh, that, that is, is why you are where you're at right now, part of it. So I loved, I loved Alora. She, she had to grow up fast. Uh, okay. So I think we'd be remiss if we didn't also talk about the tremendous supporting cast. Um, everyone from Big to Uncle Brownie <laughs> and his 15-year-old weed uh, oh to God. the unknown warrior. Oh, my gosh. To Lil Mike and Funny Bone, the rappers. Uh, even uh, I thought Bear's mom was a really a yes. really compelling character, you know. Uh, yeah. I, I, Sonia, I'm curious. One, okay, so I, I follow a number of native thinkers on Twitter, and like it was all any of them were talking about the whole time the show was going on, and they were all making jokes mostly that I didn't understand about like other like it just seemed like everyone knew all of the characters in the show, not literally, but I mean it was like every single native person that I was following was like, oh man, yeah, that's my aunt so and so, or that's him, or I grew up with that guy, or whatever. Like, did you have a similar experience? Was there a, like a particular supporting character, or maybe a couple that? really like just had a special place for you as you watch the show you know i think throughout the whole entire um like show there's always someone that reminds you of someone like like back home like oh my gosh you're so like my aunt or they're so like um episode two when they're like at the indian health clinic it's like oh that's so how the indian health clinic is if you have to go seek medical treatment and how you're treated (laughs) but i really enjoyed um kind of like William Knifeman, not only because he, um, like the, um, the actor playing him was on the comedy, um, they had a comedy group, 1491. Um, oh. So, and then I'm wearing my shirt. You know, yes. <laughs> so, and it just, like, I felt like that really, like, set the stage when Bear, like, from episode one, sets the stage for the whole entire um um episode like he's like this unknown warrior and it, it tells a funny story because he's not stoic he doesn't even die at the battle of little bighorn he dies <laughs> killed by the horse but then also it also brought back that realness of to where he was talking about like oh like when he's talking to bear like it's easy to be bad um but then it's also like hard to be a warrior with dignity. And I felt like that character kind of set the stage of the journey that each character throughout the season is about to go upon. 
So I was I was really compelled by that character because when he first rode into the scene, I was like, oh no. <laughs> what is this? Like, yeah, how did this make it onto the show? And then like from the second he starts talking, he's so not the thing that he embody yeah, he looks like, you know? Um and yet like he's still he's still very much like I kept wondering, is it going to be played for a joke that he's like not really a spirit guide or not really one of the ants? But no, he is. And he's just irreverent and funny and also serious and genuinely is trying to impart wisdom. To, but, you know, it was such a it was such an encapsulation of the show for me because it's it's at once so stereotypical and then like the furthest thing from a stereotype that it could possibly yeah. be. Yeah. You know, it was like inviting me in so that it could get me with the sucker punch and and I fell for it hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. He was, every time he showed up, it was just amazing, like hilarious and insightful. And yeah, I loved watching him talk about <laughs> the Battle of Little Bighorn. <laughs> like, so good. Uh, I could go on and on about that character and that performance. <laughs> What about you, Kathy? Any any particular side characters that, that you really loved? Um, I really loved uh, Uncle, Uncle Brownie, <laughs> which, <laughs> you know, the name is also kind of like, oh, because anyway, um, and and the, the weed and the whole like oh, kind of being stuck and what it takes to get unstuck. And he keeps talking about his 15-year-old weed. And you you don't understand until you realize, like, that's what he's been looking for, right? Like, that's why he's, there are these little piles of dirt on his yard. Like, he's looking for this weed that he buried. And that, you know, you kind of want for it to be great weed. You you I want that for him. I want him to open it and the folks being like, oh my gosh, we've never had anything this, this amazing. And yet it's this, it's the letdown that is so important. Um, and it's the skunkiest uh, of skunk. (laughs) (laughs) And just, I think it's the, it's the, the hunger for the kids, right. The hunger on their part for, um, knowledge, wisdom, connection, um, the connect, the hunger on Alora's part, um, with her mom and, uh, and then him also realizing there's a need for him with them, right. To learn from them. And then there's that whole episode, like the side story with the deer, and I, I had to look up, I was like, I don't know what backstrap is. Keep talking about this. I, was like, I don't know what this is. I don't. So I Googled it and I was like, oh. Willie Jack makes, loves her backstrap. Yeah. I didn't, I had no idea. I mean, I don't think I've ever had venison. I've learned about hunting um, in the few years I lived up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and had to learn all about like the various, the various hunting seasons. But, um, but yeah, I was like, backstrap? Never heard of it. How does one well, eat this? Uh, on that note, let's move into the kind of more spoilers because okay. the episode you're rec- the episode you're referencing is one where they they actually do kind of in the mid part of the season give each of those four core characters their own episode that they're at the heart of where the other the other three are tangential at best and this one in particular is Willie Jack's episode where she goes with her dad into uh onto a Texas ranchers land oh my to hunt 
Oh my gosh, what, Kathy? That part. <laughs> that part. So many, so many things about whose land and are you allowed and all that. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was struck by that too. And her dad at one point says, you know, we're Indians, we don't own land. Um so there's a sense of there's a sense of feeling entitled to the land because they're there and it's land and that you know as you point out they were there a long time before the Texans were um and then at the same time he's also trying to be careful not to get caught right you know because he understands that like while that's true it's also true that they live in a land now with laws that let people own land yeah well, even the first episode, right? The first episode where they steal the truck, the chips, the the spicy chip truck, which I Flaming love. Flaming flamers Flaming or something flamers. Like Yeah. I was yeah. like, oh, I like those. Um, uh, that it's it starts out with theft. It starts out with stealing. And in my mind... Like the the fear was like oh no the stereotypical right like it's it's starting out with breaking the law, but uh how did we get to this place? Well, there were laws unspoke well un unknown laws to folks like Columbus who were who was lost that were broken right promises that were broken. Uh, promises that were never made. And so I thought that was the whole first episode. I had to kind of stop and think, oh, well, what what are my stereotypes? What are the biases? What are the kind of stories that I've heard about Res Life? And how am I not fully understanding what this episode means or could mean as we get mm. to know all of these characters? So, um it it was a it was a surprising introduction to these to this friend group for me how about for the other two of you um i felt the same way um i think that of uh, what you're talking about with them um, episode 1 is um i kind of felt that as well but then also i I always remember like within conversations within um, native communities of how they just want to be seen, not from the ha- the past, the history, mm-hmm. but then also in this real context. And then understanding that there is still the life, the reservation life. And then it looked like it was like a border town. So border towns are always even like another like obstacle and another difficulty that they're going to have to navigate. And just to see that of um, how that plays out um, with the episode of the the hunting and then just to understand that each tribe that lost the land and that's how on the Navajo reservation, which is like the largest land of of reservation that is still on reserve, that we don't have so much of that issue um, in the sense but when we like go hunting in different parts of Arizona, that we still have to be respectful of that land. And just to see that experience, um, like through the lens of another tribe, it was mm-hmm. really like helped me to reflect on just, just 
life of among different tribes is really difficult, but then also um, there's that common like bond that we share with the respect for the land of how they go about the hunting and then just that carrying on the generational um, traditions. Mm-hmm. And so it was, um, I think it was really helpful and just to reflect and then to have those discussions with my son. So, and he didn't grow up on the reservation. So for me to like, just for he to, to see some of it and then mm-hmm. to ask questions and then he'll know, he knows a little bit about Riz life, but he, he definitely is uh, a native, like urban Indian. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the, the kind of the major arc of the show, which is that we find out, well, we find out in the first episode that these four want to get enough money to go to California because their friend Daniel always wanted to leave the reservation and go to California. And we know at the beginning in the first episode that Daniel died about a year ago. We, we don't know until near the end of the first season in an episode called California Dreamin', which was Alora's episode, that Daniel uh, died by suicide. And uh, uh, Devery Jacobs, who played Alora on the show, uh, wrote an article for Time Magazine uh, that talks about uh, the, the show's handling of suicide among Native peoples. Um, she, she mentioned in the article that uh, Native Americans have the highest suicide rate of all races mm-hmm. in the United States. Uh, and I just want to read a quote here and then see what uh, y'all think. Um, she says, this topic isn't merely a storyline. It's one of the first times indigenous people have had an opportunity to collectively mourn and heal in a mainstream production. Everyone behind Reservation Dogs, all of the key creatives and cast members, have deeply personal elements of ourselves baked into this episode, and I am no exception. Um, Sonia, I'm curious how this episode hit you. I mean, I know we've, we've talked a little bit before the show, and you said that um, you know it was deeply personal for you. For you. So yeah. however much you you're want to share on the air about this, Daniel's story, how that connects to Alora and all of that, what that did for you and, and your son as you all were watching this. Um, so... I actually watched the shows before I watched it with him. We haven't, so we haven't watched this one together. And um, it was really like heartbreaking. And I think like Kathy said, just like see what Alora is going through. Um, And then the difficulty that, um, what she has to navigate and how she has to grow up so quickly. But then also to understand um, what's, the William Knifeman, like Tolbert was like, it's easy to be a warrior. It's hard to um, be a warrior with dignity, or it's easy to be bad. It's um, hard to be a warrior with dignity. And what are you going to do for your people? And what are you, um, what are you going to fight for? And then it was difficult to see, like, you can hear like the communal part of um like what we feel, but then also there's still the individual part and the Laura explaining to Bear, like you don't owe anyone anything, like you don't owe anyone in this town anything. So her, and then just understanding why she says that and to see the struggles and the difficulties in that episode seven of what she's facing, like the loss of her mom and just that, just that conversation with her old um, basketball coach and just, how they navigate through the story and then Daniel's death 
was probably really difficult and for her to see it, um, it was, it brought back, like, it is true that um, everyone on the reservation are plagued with some sort of suicide story and my family as well. And like growing up, and I remember I was probably about seven or eight years old and my cousin dying of suicide and just to see that devastation because my dad, um, his uncle, um, was so close and just to see that heartbreak and just to see how it devastated um, firsthand our family and to see my cousins and just to see like, like how people, like people try to reach out, but then also the struggles that they're facing and they don't know how to respond. And like, they feel like the only way out is through, through death and just to be, just to find peace. And I think that's really hard because you don't really know how to reach people and like how do you reach your community when everyone's so far away and people are trying to realize what are they going to do for their community and do we really owe our people something so I think that was really difficult for just to for that episode and just to process that and just to think about my own family and what they've gone through and just to hear other stories of um, families who have lost loved ones for the same reason, or um, it's, it's like, you don't really know what to do, but just lament with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you. And I, you know, it, there's something about, you know, so listeners, obviously I'm not, I'm not indigenous, um, uh, I think there is something particularly with uh, communities, people quote on the margins, but we're not really on the margins. Um, we're just put there. <laughs> we're just pressed out and pushed out. Um, that that in it of itself raises so many other issues around mental health, and stories and wisdom that does and doesn't get passed on because of trauma. And um, and I, you know, I had mentioned earlier, Alora's. she, I was drawn to her and even more so after that part of her story. So, you know, spoiler alert, listeners, if you haven't watched the whole series, close your ears, turn them off. Um, because she's the one who finds Daniel. And um, my, uh, I didn't learn I had an older aunt until I was, I think, in my late 20s, early 30s, that my mom had an older sister. We always thought she was the oldest. She was not. She had an older sister who died by suicide. We don't talk about it that way. She died because she was very sad. And I think there is that heaviness of when you're not free to tell your full story, you 
you you carry that weight. And I think Elora's character does a really good job of that. Um, that she doesn't have very many lighthearted moments, even though most of the other characters do. Even though it's real life and there are ups and downs, I feel like she's very like... Um, she carries the weight of her experience and then finding Daniel. Um, and I, I think I need to like keep watching. I, I want to go back and watch that again because I think there's so much to unpack just in terms of a singular storyline, um, what it does to someone that young in a community that, doesn't want to talk about what happened. Um, and then earlier in the series, in the season, we see the four of them having a memorial service for Daniel and this beautiful ceremony of smudging and the, the cleansing. And um, I, that, that felt like being in church and I haven't been in church in so long that there was this collective grief and recognition um, that felt really important right now. That's also why I think people should watch it. People should watch it, that there is a lesson to be learned broadly for us on what it looks to find spaces to grieve together. Uh, I want to take a tangent that I swear circles back. Okay. Um, so relatively recently, uh, there was a fairly large capital D discourse about missing white woman syndrome uh, following the disappearance of Gabby uh, Petito. I'm not sure how you pronounce her last name because I only read it. Um, but she was a white woman who went missing and then the media uh, cycle was dominated for a few days by all of these, um, you know, questions yeah, about what happened to her and uh, yeah, all this kind of stuff. And um, I, I want to be careful here because I don't want to uh, suggest that, that white women who go missing are somehow not worth being found. Um, but what the, what the discourse pointed out was that every time a white woman goes missing, it, it's like, you know, stop the presses. It's national uh, news. It's national news, all this stuff. Whereas uh, women of color and particularly native women of color uh, actually go missing and end up being murdered all the time mm -hmm. uh, to the point that it's a, it's, it's an epidemic and has been an epidemic. Uh, and yet there's no even local attention drawn to it, let alone national attention. And, um, I, I couldn't help but read uh, Devery Jacobs' article where she's talking about how uh, how in, how epidemic suicide is in the Native community and how no one talks about it, and that her hope with this show was that that would create some spaces among Natives and in communities to be able to talk and to grieve together, right? <coughs> I think it's also why it's important um, – 
if you haven't seen the show yet, you'll you'll see when you get there. If you have seen it, if you think back on the scene where Alora finds Daniel's body, it was shot so respectfully and carefully mm-hmm. yeah. so that the focus is not on the trauma that's been done to Daniel's body, but rather it's on Alora and on the impact that his death and his passing has had on the community. Um, so as there's not the fetishizing and glamorizing of uh, indigenous pain. It's it's a it's a mourning and, and, and a lamenting sort of a thing. Um, and yeah, I, I just, I just, uh, as I was, as I was thinking about all that and getting ready for this interview, I, I kind of just had to pause and hold some space for the, the reality that, um, the reality of, of this, of what the show is saying is that we have not had spaces to do this and grieve. We being native peoples. Right. Um, and yeah, when, when, uh, when white kids are in danger or in trouble or when white women go missing or whatever, there's, there's plenty of attention and uproar, but, um, it's, it's a much, it's a much more urgent thing for native peoples. And yet there's no time, attention, funds, you know, cameras, nothing, nothing for that. So it, it really struck me and it made me both like really grateful for this show and also like enraged that it's 2021 and we're getting one, you know, two, if you count Rutherford Falls, which is great also, um, you know, it's just like long overdue and, and too little, uh, so far. Sorry, I don't really have a question on that. I just had a statement. You know, um, I think like what you're talking about, there's this testimony of Native people that has been, um, given, but it's really like overlooked. So, um, did you ever watch the movie Thunderheart that came out of the 90s with Val Kilmer? No. Okay. In there, there's a, probably one of, one of the very first times that I remember recall seeing um, a missing murdered indigenous woman and they find her. Um, then also um, Dance Me Outside, which is um, another one that was popular in the 90s, which is still, I don't, it's difficult to find because I don't think it's like on um um, I had to buy like the DVD um, just to find it because it's not streamed anywhere. Um, and I used to have the VHS, but I don't have a VHS player. So. I can loan <laughs> you um, one. I have one. Yeah. <laughs> Dance we'll do a watch party. <laughs> um, it talked like there was a missing indigenous in there. And then I never really understood it. And I knew like it was something that occurred. Mm-hmm. But um, sadly, that's actually something that happened within my family. And again, <laughs> which it's difficult because to, to see that and then to hear the frustration of the family members crying out for mm-hmm. law enforcement um, to do something. And then just to see that and just, um, it has a lot to do also with um the role of policing, um, the lack, like the limited amount of police force, but then also like goes back to um, the social system, political, um, that is set on the reservation. So where any um, criminal offenses is federal. So that doesn't fall under tribal, which they can't do it. So then they have to call in the FBI. And the FBI are infamously known to just let go of this, not 
let anything go further. You can see that in Thunder Art where they just want to dismiss like all these losses, these deaths, and um, you understand why it's so difficult to for um, people of color, for indigenous communities to find justice is because the legal system is set up to where it's difficult to continuously um, search for these people where they just dismiss it. And I think just knowing that people are more willing to speak out um, and their testimony is actually heard and now we're able to hear more from various perspectives of these contexts of what is going out of what people have been staying for so long. And I think last year when I preached brief, uh, I briefly mentioned it about, about that, um, but it's just things that the community is just, and then it's difficult as well, just when as many times as we're told, like, just forget about it and move on. And that's not good for our mental health to where everything is just bottled up and no one can lament mm -hmm. um, these losses. So, Sonia, this episode is coming out on Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, we have a lot of non-Native listeners. Um, as a pastor, as a, in, as a Native woman, uh, do you have any thoughts about what, like, what you would like to invite folks to today? Uh, today being Indigenous Peoples Day, right? Not today, the day we're recording. Um, metaphorically, today, I guess. Uh, um, what What are some What are some good ways non-Native people can celebrate? Uh, the contributions and presence of, of Native Americans? I think not to be dismissive of the voices of the people. Um, and I think it's with any people of color group, it's always difficult when you have these like um, indigenous, like these days that celebrate our culture of where it's, um, what do you call it? Uh, it's not colonized but it's um but it could be yeah like it's 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 like highlighted to where of how you interpret it and it's not and it's always this from the film of the past but it doesn't really highlight the people of today because I think all people of color communities are the same way that we carry on the traditions and the stories of our past that are lived out today. And it's almost like a biblical narrative. So in celebration of Indigenous People Day, to know the history, to know the story of the people told by the people and how it shaped and formed them and how they continue to go forward in solidarity together. Yeah, the there's I and I think I understand what you're getting at. The the there is a danger with having a day <laughs> or a month um, that then uh, the time frame in which you're held responsible for knowing anything about that people group is to that day, and and maybe you get a month, um, and then it it gets relegated 
right? It, it's the systems that set that up too. So then it's in the schools and you only talk about the day or you only talk about these things during the month. And at, I was just at the library and that's when you get the display in the library. <laughs> and that's the only time you see authors who are not white being highlighted very specifically. And so I, I get that. There is that kind of sense of like, this could be good or it could be really bad. <laughs> yes. And I think it's just understanding like how to go about it in a respectful way because we can glamorize it. But then also to know that these we are, everyone's like people that we all have these stories that we come from and we can alter the stories to where it's only the good Indian or we can um, bring about who, what their experiences are, the story and their viewpoint. And how does that shape even us as a community, the body as a whole, mm-hmm. as um, like within the church, the body of Christ. So, and how does it unite us? Amen. Amen. Also, I loved the show. It's very humanizing, right? It's, it's very, it was very like, there's, there isn't this kind of like, oh, there's the good and the bad. It's just human. And this is what they're going through. And oh man, you gotta, that's the clinic. And then of course, like one of my people shows up in the clinic and he's the doctor. <laughs> and I was like, but even there it was like, oh, well, I want to go back to where I came from. And the kid's like, oh, China. <laughs> And that interaction was just, it was hilarious. But also, um, and I needed the hilarity because this is supposed to be a comedy series. So when I, that first episode, I was like, I am not laughing quite the way I anticipated. Um, So listeners, if you haven't watched the show, this is not like a belly laugh. Like, it. okay, yes, belly laughing, but not in the like, slapsticky kind of that kind of comedy it some of the comedy is very subtle and it's smart it's funny but not the I think it's not I, a Judd Apatow movie no no and I, so I that's why that's also I think why I appreciated it is because comedy doesn't have to be stupid how's yeah. that this is a very I, smart I, show I will say this. Uh, when my wife describes my viewing experience of this show, she often uses the term cackled. <laughs> that I cackled during this show. I laughed so hard during the show. And then also it is incredibly profound. <laughs> yes. 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 And it it I feel like these days there are there's not a there's not a a whole lot of that. And um and I appreciated that because I also feel like I'm already in this mental space of everything being very serious and very deep. And so if I want to escape, I actually don't want it to be dumb humor. (laughs) So I appreciated that this was funny and smart um, because it can be funny and dumb. And I just, I get enough of that with our stories of the week. Bird well, thanks husband. a lot. <laughs> Bird husband. Come on. Come on. Uh, well, Sonia, I just want to say again, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, we would like to invite you before you take off to join us in what's fascinating us this week. Uh, we'll let you go last so you have plenty of time to think. 
Um, but Kathy, what do you have for the uh, story of the week? Or not story of the week. Sorry, the thing that's fascinating. you. thing that is fascinating. So I'm going to pull a JR. I've got two things. Yes. Um, well, we're missing two hosts. So. Yes. So I can, I can do that. Um, I watched this documentary um, on Netflix. I'm going to read the title because I don't want to get it wrong. Hope Frozen, A Quest to Live Twice. Ooh, and I'm in. It's about this Thai family and their young daughter and cryogenics. And that's it. She dies. Um, she's got a rare cancer, I think. And uh, the, the dad is like this scientist. And so he does all this research around her disease. And it's very clear that there's, there's no hope. And so they opt to, they freeze her. I was like, I've I've heard about this, but um, and and this was just a few years ago that they've done this. So they kind of follow the family and they go visit her where she's frozen, and so there's there's that. I just was fascinated by this um, desire to keep alive, literally, or bring about life again, and the means and ends to which somebody might go to do that. Um, and then on the kind of in the same vein, I've started this new Netflix series, which is a gay drama. I know, shocking. Um, it's called Move to Heaven. And it is about um, this young man who I believe has, he's, he's got Asperger's. Um, it, he's, uh, He's on the spectrum, um, and they, he and his father have this company. They call it Move to Heaven, where they go and clean out a deceased person's room, home, space uh, as their kind of last move on this earthly world. And, um, and, and kind of the story that they unearth for each person that they go do this move to. And um, so on a number of levels, just fascinated by this, um, the disability community in Korea, I have no idea where the conversation is, but to see a main character um, who's got Asperger's and the actor does not. So I think that there might be some buzz around that, similarly to The Good Doctor that is on air on ABC is similar, where the person, the actor, actually um, is not autistic but plays somebody who does. So there's that problem, but there's also this kind of um, communal push and pull around death, around things people accumulate and what is valuable and what is not. And so I, I binge like three episodes and then I was like, I got to stop. <laughs> I should go to bed and function like a normal human being. But I am fascinated by this show, Move, Move to Heaven. How about you, Jim? Awesome. Well, I'm going to do one and maybe two. 
Okay. Uh, I think I've already recommended this recently, but I wanted to do it again because it is spooky season and it is also Indigenous Peoples Day. And so one of my favorite native authors is a Blackfeet author named Stephen Graham Jones, who writes horror. I have mentioned him multiple times on the show before. He wrote Mongrels, which is my favorite werewolf novel. He also wrote uh, The Only Good Indians, which is Ooh, it's scary uh, and great. And he just put out a book called My Heart is a Chainsaw, which is his love letter to Final Girls and Slashers. And the main character is the only indigenous high school girl in this little small town in Idaho. Uh, she becomes convinced that she is living in a slasher movie and that the new popular pretty girl at school is the final girl. And it's her job to get her ready to survive to the end. Um <laughs> it is I cannot tell you any more about why I like it and how okay. much it interacts with our uh, episode we did today without doing some pretty massive spoilers so okay. I will just say if you liked Reservation Dogs I think you will enjoy this um, it made it cl- I he had so many references in that book to slashers that I'm convinced he made half of them up uh, so if you're worried that you don't know enough about slashers don't worry I uh, know a lot about slashers, and I still felt like I didn't know enough about slashers. You'll be fine. Uh, it's great. It is a great book. Uh, it is a horror novel from start to finish. Uh, so if that's not your bag, it's not your bag, and fair warning, but uh, uh, it's a great book. So that's my pick. Sonia, what about you? Oh, you know, I haven't really been watching like a lot of anything or just other than reading school too. School but, man. Uh, <laughs> you know, I would I did watch before school started, I watched the whole season of Demon Slayer and so anime. How was that? It was really good and just this um just the storyline and just to go through with each of the characters and oh my gosh it was and then it's at the beginning it's kind of scary kind of have like demons and like they fight them obviously so but it it's really good and i didn't think i was gonna like it because i was i'm not really into anime but watching that i was like oh my gosh and then i think the so yeah starting to slowly I need a, I was like, I can't do this for school because that's all I'm going to do is just watch anime. <laughs> uh, Kathy, is this an anime that your family has watched? Yes, I started watching it with my son, my older oh. son, who watches way too much anime. He needs to get a job. <laughs> um, Corbin, big fans, love to have you on the show. Yes. Uh, <laughs> after, you you can be on the show after you get a job. Um, and uh, we had started this and... Um, <laughs> yeah, just the whole like the the sister thing and the <laughs> I was like, wow, that is a very deep sibling bond. And then I would constantly joke like, would you do that with your brother or sister? And he was like, mom, what? <laughs> like that's the whole point. <laughs> Of this show. Well, now I'm going to have to watch it so I know what you're even talking about. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do want to throw out one more pick uh, because uh, I know, Sonia, we, again, not to spoil our offline chats, but you and I were talking about this book. It's one of my favorite books. It's being made soon into a film from director Martin Scorsese. uh, And it actually ties directly into something that we have already talked about today. Uh, which is Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. And that book is David Grand's Killers of the Flower Moon, yes. which is the 
craziest story in American history that you've never heard. Right? It's really good. Oh my gosh. Oh, oh yeah, I forgot I was reading that book for I haven't read it this week, but <laughs> That's all right. I got you. Um, Algebra yeah. has been torture for me, so. <laughs> uh, so, Kathy, you also have read it. So, we've yes. all read it. Okay. Yes. And when I read it, I was like, is this real? I kept, yeah. like, flipping, going, I didn't pick this up in fiction, right? Like, this right. is. David yeah. Grant is an investigative journalist, and he finds out, this is basically the, the like, the case that the FBI was sort of formed to tackle in the first place. And to, to your point, Sonia, like a lot of what the crimes that happen in Indian uh, territory are assigned to the FBI. Um, and so, yeah, this is kind of the origins of all of that. And it it is the most bo- bonkers because I can't believe it happened. It happened in Oklahoma, which is like five hours from where I grew up in Kansas City, which is, you know, where Sonia lives now. And I literally never heard a thing about it ever, ever, right? ever, ever. Um, yeah. So... Much like a lot of people felt watching Watchmen and learning that Black Wall Street was the thing that happened in Tulsa, very much how I felt with this. So, uh, and again, Scorsese is where it may, he may even be finished filming it at this point. I don't know with COVID and everything, but it's. Yeah. And, you know, it's really interesting that like reading the book, starting to read the book, give a reminder of like the Bureau of Indian Affairs that is by the federal government and like how their policies are like whatever laws are in place it has to go through the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And then also like just the westward expansion and how it tells about Oklahoma and the allotments there because each tribe is different. And I know that Oklahoma, they had the allotments given to each individual person to where um, they don't have like a reserve like the Navajo Reservation does. So completely different. Um, it was just interesting just to hear that perspective and just be re- reminded of what had happened to the people, um, the native people within um, Oklahoma and Kansas, because they were from Kansas, then they moved to Oklahoma. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there you go. Plenty of good reading and media for your week. Uh, We want to thank again, our guest, Sonia Brown. Uh, If you want to hear any of Sonia's messages, you can go to the Catalyst YouTube page, which is youtube.com slash Catalyst Rowlett, and then just search her name, Sonia Brown, um, and you can can sit under her preaching, which I highly recommend. Uh, You've preached four times, I think, so far? Three. Three? Okay, and then you're preaching again in November. Um, So very excited about that. and, um, yeah, I, I just, again, Sonia, thanks so much for being on. Uh, we loved having you. Yay. Thank you. I really enjoyed this and Good. thank you for inviting me. Well, it won't be the last time, uh, mainly because Clay and Matt didn't get to talk to you and they were, uh, green with envy that they were missing <laughs> this week. So, uh, we will be back next week with another great episode until then take care of yourselves, take care of each other. Spend some time uh, acknowledging Indigenous Peoples Day and try to think about making it Indigenous Peoples Year. Uh, Until next time, uh, stay home if you can, wear your mask, get your shots, and take care of each other.